The uh, first formal Dharma instruction that I got from an actual live teacher, as opposed to reading books or trying to teach myself how to meditate out of magazines, that that's what we had to do back in the dark ages, you know. (laughs) Um, Came when I was in my senior year of college, uh, finishing up my engineering degree. And I had a big senior project that I had to complete to graduate. And um, the partners that I had been assigned to my group were not exactly carrying their weight (laughs) of the work of the project. And I was in real need of some stress reduction, um, as well as two more credits (laughs) to graduate. (laughs) So fortuitously, there was a listing in the class catalog, meditation class, beginning meditation. I think that was all it said. (laughs) There's no further explanation of what might be involved. But it was two credits, pass-fail, perfect. I signed up. It was just a few blocks from the dormitory where I was living, and I figured it would be an interesting experience. It would fit the bill. And the class turned out to be um, at this small uh, urban Zen center in in a townhouse, a brownstone in Boston. And the teacher uh, had some connection with the university, which still is not clear to me, Uh, but she had been trained by a Japanese Zen master. And that's the style of practice that she taught, very, really quite traditional uh, style of Zen practice. So there was a group of about a dozen of us, and we uh, lined up around the edges of the meditation room, which had been like the the living room or the the salon (laughs) in this brownstone, facing the wall, as you do in, in Zazen. And we were given very simple beginning meditation instructions, not too different from what we learn in the style, using the breath as an anchor in a particular way. And so I'd sit there you know, a couple of times a week, facing the wall, <laughs> trying to follow my breath, and the whole time really feeling very uncomfortable, feeling very awkward, um, out of place, kind of tentative, uncertain. But by the end of that half hour, I would get up and I would feel more relaxed. I would feel lighter. And I had no idea what was happening as I sat there looking at the wall, counting my breaths. Um, But I knew that something was happening. And it was happening uh, without putting any mind-altering substances into my body, (laughs) which was a novel experience. And, uh, you know, I've been reading about meditation, I've been reading about the Dharma, so I knew in theory that this is how it works, right? You work with the mind, changes the quality of the mind. Um, But to actually experience that uh, for myself, you know, up close and personal, to actually see it working, uh, was something different than reading about it. It it was, uh, the light bulb went off over my head. And it turned out that that course also included koan practice, you know, the the famous Zen koans, the teaching questions, uh, what's the sound of one hand clapping, you know, that kind of thing. But these were kind of uh, kindergarten koans that she started us on, that the Zen master started us on. So one by one, we'd go into a little room off of the meditation room and spend just a couple of minutes with the teacher. She'd ask us, you know, the Zen question. We'd try to answer it. She'd ring the bell. (laughs) That would be it. Um, So the first koan went like this. What is this? (laughs) And the answer is... (laughs) 
So I got the hang of this um, pretty quickly. <laughs> it was basically the same koan over and over again with various different objects like uh, reading glasses, a fan, you know. So it became clear pretty quickly this, that there was this formula, right? The teacher shows you an object and then you kind of demonstrate its fun- functionality, right? <laughs> Rather than responding with words and concepts and its name and an explanation or anything like that. Um, you know, so that wasn't rocket science. I was able to go in and um, get those little riddles um, correct <laughs> pretty consistently, pretty easily. Until the last day of the class when I went in, the teacher asked the koan question, I answered it however I answered it. And then she looked at me very pointedly and said, you're very clever. <laughs> and she didn't say it, you know, in any way judgmental, wasn't snide, didn't come across that way. It was very matter of fact. You're very clever. But <clears throat> that hit me like a ton of bricks, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. It was like a a bucket of cold ice water over the head, or a slap in the face. It really knocked the breath out of me, quite literally. And I believe um, my response was, um, uh, mm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> something along those lines. And then she rang the bell, and you know that was the end of our <laughs> interview. And what hit me, uh, which was definitely not clear at the time, Uh, through that little interchange, um, but is now much clearer with with hindsight, was that there was another option besides being clever, (laughs) which I don't think had ever really occurred to me at that point in my life. Um, All that had ever been asked or expected from me was to be clever, very clever, and good, but the good was somewhat secondary. The clever was really the important part. And here was a situation and a teacher, a teacher who I had some respect for, who was asking something else from me, and I didn't know what. I didn't know what that other thing was that she was asking for. So Zen in the long run didn't turn out to be my particular path, but I came away from that class with a few important things. Uh, Firstly, uh, two credits. (laughs) Second, a little bit less stress. It definitely did reduce my stress level, which was nice. Um, but I also came away with this, this thing that I didn't bargain for, which is, was a real interest, a real curiosity to learn, to discover what was this extra thing that was possible, that the teacher was pointing towards, pointing me towards, that I didn't know what it was. So what's the alternative to being clever? <laughs> or we might say, what's the, the complement to being clever? What's the partner to being clever? What is it that makes cleverness complete, or that completes the understanding that we gain through cleverness, through the intellect? That's what we're here to find out. And we do that through this process called insight. So we can think of insight as a different way of knowing everything that we already know. <laughs> so it's, it's not necessarily that we're uncovering dramatically different things but we're learning about them, we're knowing them in a, dif- in a different way, from a different perspective. That's the meaning of the word vipassana, this style of practice is called vipassana insight in the original Pali language. And vipassana is a word that comes from the roots for uh, seeing and uh, we might say differently, seeing differently, is kind of a translation of that word. 
So the intellect, the thinking mind, the analytical mind, that's a particular function of mind, a faculty of mind, and it is very useful. That's a big problem when it doesn't operate properly. We can't care for ourselves when it doesn't. It's that power of the human mind, the human intellect, that's made us so powerful as a species, uh, so successful as a species, both for better and for worse. But it turns out that there's this other faculty of mind that the Buddha called wisdom. And that provides us with a different viewpoint, a different way of understanding what's going on here, both here in, in kind of the minute sense of just right now in front of our faces, and here in the bigger sense of like our lives and uh, our race. So through education, we can train the intellectual faculty of the mind. Uh, We can develop it, strengthen it, learn to apply it in different ways. And it's the same with the wisdom faculty. So we can develop it, we can train it, we can learn to apply it in different ways. And that's what the Buddha called bhavana, mental development, mental cultivation. And that's one way of thinking about what we're doing here, what we're practicing here in this very specific context is bhavana, mental cultivation, mental development. All of uh, the mindfulness and the loving kindness and the precepts, all of that stuff um, is the methodology that the Buddha laid out for how to go about cultivating the mind. And the reason that we're still doing it here, you know, 2,000-ish years later, is that generation after generation after generation of yogis, people like us wanting to find greater peace, have found that it works pretty well. It's pretty good technology for cultivating wisdom. What we find when we look at our experience, and when we look in this very strange particular way that we're looking here, through this practice, through the lens of vipassana, seeing things differently, without the overlay of all of our cleverness. We're all very clever. (laughs) When we peel that away and just look at things as they are in the present moment, in reality, then what starts to emerge is what we call the universal characteristics of experience, which is a mouthful. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. You may have encountered uh, those teachings about the universal characteristics in your reading or your listening. In Pali, they're called anicca, dukkha, and anatta. In English, they're often translated as impermanence, uh, suffering, and no-self or non-self or emptiness, often in the Zen tradition. Um, We can think of them as the impermanent, unsatisfying, and impersonal qualities of experience, of all experience. They're said to be universal because they apply to every moment of experience. Every moment of experience is characterized by those three properties, those three qualities. So every experience, every moment of experience has its own unique characteristics, what we sometimes call specific characteristics, individual characteristics. So, you know, just looking at the the Buddha image and the flower back here, they have different specific characteristics. The Buddha is hard, (laughs) the flower is soft, the Buddha is cold, the flower is probably less cold. (laughs) They're different colors, they're different shapes, they're different sizes, they each have their own distinguishing characteristics. Just like the bell. 
You know, it's got its own distinguishing characteristic, right? Which is this. It's a characteristic of the bell. And it's the same when we look into our bodies, look into our minds, we find that there uh, are moments of heat, moments of cold, moments of pain, moments of pleasure, moments of thinking, moments of falling asleep. Right? Every moment has certain characteristics that define it. But all of them, whatever their specific qualities might be, also possess the universal characteristics. Heat, cold, pleasure, pain, hard, soft, cold, warm. All of those are impermanent, unsatisfying, and impersonal. But hearing that idea, you know, hearing us talk about that or reading that idea in an article, uh, thinking about it ourselves, mulling it over, you know, coming to the conclusion that, yeah, that makes sense, accepting it as an intellectual idea, believing in it, um, none of those are insight and do not lead to wisdom. Those are all activities on the intellectual level. They're not getting at the level of wisdom. To cultivate wisdom, we have to experience those universal characteristics directly in the moment as an intrinsic aspect of experience, an intrinsic quality of the moment's experience. So when we look at the flower here, you know, we don't have to think and ponder, hmm, I wonder what color it is, you know. Is, it, is the wavelength that it's emitting closer to red or is it closer to blue? You know, does it look like more like red things that I've seen or blue things that I've seen? We don't have to go through all of that, right? We look at it. If the eyes are functioning, we see. It's white. So when insight kicks in, it's the same way. So it's not that we're deciding that things are impermanent or figuring out that things are impermanent or even just labeling things as impermanent. It's, it's a knowing that's not on that level of intellectual understanding. But instead we see in the moment, right in that experience, that it has the quality of impermanence. At times it might actually seem like we can feel that it's impermanent. It can be very kinesthetic. So that's never going to feel like our idea of impermanence. And some of you have been discovering this. That, you know, we come on retreat, we've done, you know, a bunch of reading, we, we've heard about these characteristics, we know that that's what's, what it's about, and yet, <laughs> when the moment comes, and we actually feel the ground shake under our feet, feel that things are fleeting, feel that things are empty, you know, rolling along, empty phenomena rolling along, when we actually experience that in the moment, it's something else entirely from our ideas about it. So through our meditation, we come to see these universal characteristics for ourselves. And that's what we mean by insight here. So in this specialized sense, insight doesn't refer to just anything or everything that we might realize while we're on retreat or in the course of our practice. And the truth is that over the course of our practice, we realize all sorts of things. You know, not just these universal characteristics, but all sorts of things about, you know, our, our personal history, other people's personal history, our psychological and emotional wiring, um, you know, all sorts of things that um, are very useful, very useful in living our lives more skillfully and suffering less. 
but aren't actually uh, insight, kind of in the in the technical sense of the insight meditation society. <clears throat> and we generally start off on the path, uh, many of us, with a lot of this kind of what we call psychological insight, just kind of realizing so- things about ourselves, about others that we interact with, about the human condition in general, you know, the world, living in this world. Um, there's lots of things that we uncover. I remember coming from my first retreat here about 20 years ago, Ugh, over 20 years ago now. <laughs> um, and one of the big themes for me on that retreat was rehashing an unhealthy relationship that I had ended a few years earlier. You know, So it wasn't recent history. So it surprised me that it came up with such force, but I discovered very quickly that there were still unresolved things there that hadn't been dealt with. I, I remember very clearly one day um, doing yoga over in the welcome room here, which was the yoga room at the time, and trying to like just kind of stretch the body and take a break (laughs) from being mindful and give myself a a little breather, Um, but still just having the memories and the feelings coming, 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 and just at one point collapsing in tears on my yoga mat, like I just couldn't even push myself up. It was so overwhelming, perhaps you can relate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we all have these times in practice. There's going to be a certain amount of that. So so that was a really painful retreat. It was one of those retreats where I felt like I was just kind of hanging on by my fingernails trying to make it through, you know, the next moment, the next sitting, the next walking, the next day. Sometimes it's like that. But it was a really useful retreat. I did come out of it feeling lighter, you know, like I had worked through things. I had healed in ways that I needed to heal. And, you know, it's been 20-some years, and that relationship has not bugged me since then. There was a way in which I kind of put it to bed, so that's all good. (laughs) And all of us will need to do a certain amount of that kind of work in the practice, a certain amount of work on the psychological and emotional levels. A lot of us, like I said, we start off with it. Some of us, we might go along for a while and thinking, oh, I don't need to do that part. (laughs) But then a year, five years, ten years into the practice, suddenly... (laughs) It comes up and <laughs> we have to face what's in the psyche, what's in our emotions, what's in our history. And probably we'll need to do that repeatedly too. So those of us that have been on the path a long time, at certain intervals, you know, something that's unresolved comes up on the psychological level and then we need to, to deal with that. So we take that information out of retreat, out of our practice, and work with it in whatever way it makes sense. But if we're persistent and patient in our practice, then at some point we do move beyond our own personal dramas. We move beyond our own very specific sources of suffering, and we start to pick up on the bigger picture, on the bigger picture of these universal sources of suffering. I remember um, a good Dharma friend of mine coming home from a retreat here and saying, you know, I just, I didn't cry the whole retreat. I don't think it worked. Because every other retreat she'd been on, there'd been quite a lot of crying involved. But it actually does shift at some point, you know, at certain points. There are times when everything calms down, the hindrances kind of quiet down, and equanimity grows, and we begin to tune into the more universal qualities, the more universal characteristics of our experience. So we make our best effort, you know, we just try our best to be mindful in a gentle, patient way. 
And lo and behold, you know, at some point the energy balances out, the hindrances quiet down, the wandering mind is not quite so intrusive, quite so deafening, and we're able to remember to be present continuously for a little while. And I really do mean a little while, like a breath, you know, like one thought, like that little while, which as you know, is no mean feat. And at first it's very unextraordinary that just resting in the present, just resting in the present moment, just simply knowing what's actually happening. It doesn't seem like a lot usually, but it's been hidden from view by all of our ideas, all of our ideas about what's happening and what it means and who we are in the midst of it. Lately, um, I've been using the not so elegant analogy of ramen noodles to try to illustrate uh, how this works. So if you're familiar with ramen noodles, a lot of ramen noodles around the time I first started practicing, my college days. <laughs> so when you first open it up, it's like this brick of stuff, right? <laughs> it's these, I don't know what they do to it. I guess they freeze dry it or something. But it's, it's this brick of just congealed stuff that's all stuck together. And if you look at it, you can kind of see, okay, yeah, there's this noodle going there. You could probably get like pens and markers and follow the course of the individual noodles. <laughs> I'm not recommending this, but, um, you know, you can kind of see that it's a mass of stuff, but there's no way to like, you know, pick one noodle and pull it out when it's in that state. They're all stuck together. But then you pour in the boiling water, the magic happens, <laughs> you know, and then you can if you want, reach in and pull out one single strand of the noodles, another single strand of the noodles. <laughs> so, uh, that's a lot like <laughs> the, 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 the opening of the mind to things just as they are in the moment. That's a lot what it's like when we start to be able to just rest in what's, hand, in what's happening. We start to be able to see that there are various strands different strands of things going on instead of them all being mushed together into like, you know, my knee pain or my obsessive thought train. We start to see that maybe there's, there's one strand of body sensation. You know, that's a particular aspect of experience. And then there's another strand of the feeling tone, if it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That's, those are separate things. There's the strand of thinking about what's going on, analyzing what's going on. That's another strand. So we start to be able to see in our experience, just that each thing is what it is. You know, feeling in the body is feeling in the body. Hearing with the ears is hearing. Seeing with the eyes is seeing. You know, each aspect of our experience is just what it is. And there's not the confusion anymore about, you know, that they're all mixed together. That our idea, our story about what's happening is the same thing as what's happening. So you might have experienced this in your practice, maybe even without realizing it. So maybe we're um, sitting and following the breath. If we use that tool of the labeling, we might start to notice, okay, there's there's the expanding and the relaxing of the abdomen and the the rib cage and maybe the the touching of the air as it moves through the, the throat and the sinuses, the nostrils. And as we breathe in, we might note in or breath or in-breath, or however we note it. And at some point, it just becomes clear that those sensations of the body moving, the touching of the air, one thing, and that label that we put on it, a breath, that's something separate. 
It's not the same thing. It's a different experience. They're related, they're linked, but they're different. So we could try that just now, like if you just look at your hand. Okay, there it is. <laughs> you can do this, it's okay, you don't have to be embarrassed. <laughs> so what does it look like? It's like got a shape, it's got a bunch of colors. There's places where it's darker and lighter, all the shadows and the highlights. So now if you label that as hand, you can just say kind of hand, hand silently to yourself in your mind, hand. Is that word hand the same as this? See for yourself. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like yes, but it can also feel like no. As we settle in deeper to the practice, we start to get that word hand is one thing and this is something else, just like the bell, right? The word bell is one thing and that sound, the sound that it makes or how it looks or anything about it is something else, something separate. So then that becomes our practice when we start seeing things in that way, all the different strands, all the different noodles. Noticing the different strands of experience in the body and the mind from moment to moment to moment, just kind of seeing them pass by. That becomes the practice at that point. Until at some other point, the mind shifts again from the specific characteristics of the moment, the particular details of the moment, into the bigger picture of what's going on. It's like having a camera lens that zooms out. You know, maybe it's been in really close, close-up focus on all these specific little details of the moment, then it, suddenly it zooms out and we see the panoramic view of what's going on. That's when the three universal characteristics start to come into view. So once we can see clearly what the different strands of experience are, then we could begin to see the deeper truths about their nature, just, just how uh, impermanent they are, just how breathtakingly fleeting, um, their, uncontro- their uncontrollability. You know, we really start to see that we're not in charge. We didn't order that pain. We didn't order that obsessive thought. We didn't order that sleepiness. Though all of those things come according to causes and conditions. And so all of those deeper insights become accessible only when we can continuously connect with the present moment. We have to actually be here in reality to see the qualities of reality. This only makes sense. If we're off lost in our ideas and our daydreams and our our thoughts, then we're not in the place where the impermanence is actually happening, (laughs) right? We have to actually be here in this really boring moment of just feeling another breath, just feeling our body pain again, just watching the mind chugging along. We have to be there with those really mundane experiences with some continuity. This is why we stress continuity so much in order to start to pick up on, oh yeah, it's going, 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 going. It's impermanent in this deeper way that just sees it in the moment without thinking about it. So there is a method to the madness. (laughs) There's a reason why we do it this way. For many of us, the first universal characteristic that shows itself is impermanence, anicca. And of course, there's the ordinary impermanence that we're all familiar with. You know, the seasons pass, the years pass, uh, we get older, the people around us get older, the planet warms, uh, we lose things, things get broken, people die. So all of us know this, even young children. You know, we, we learn this very on in life. It's a tough lesson. It's a hard lesson. But by the time we get here, we know impermanence on this level. 
through insight, though, we come to an understanding of impermanence that goes beyond that obvious everyday level, that things are changing on this kind of macro conceptual level. And we start to see that uh, things are changing uh, much faster than we thought. When we start to meditate, we mostly just catch the middles of things. So you might be experiencing this. So we don't, at the beginning, we don't see that pain in the body wherever it happens to be as it's first coming up, usually. Usually we don't catch it until it's really <laughs> screaming at us. You know, then we definitely notice it. But usually we don't really see it percolate up. And then again, we might not see it fade away either. So it might be screaming, screaming, we're aware of it. And then, oh wait, there's an obsessive thought. <laughs> and by the time we get off of that train, it's gone or it's changed or it's time to do the next thing. So in general, we start uh, off in the practice usually seeing the middle of things. But with practice, uh, greater concentration, greater continuity of mindfulness, then we start to be able to stay with experiences longer. So we might catch it in the middle once it's already become strong, but then we might actually be able to see how it fades away or how it uh, transitions into something else which can be really neat. I remember when this first started happening to me, I thought something was wrong because I thought it meant that I was losing connection with the thing I was paying attention to, like I'd be paying attention, paying attention, and then I couldn't find it anymore. So this can be a point in the practice where you feel like there's a problem, but it's just actually that we've stayed with the experience until it disappeared or changed. With more practice, more continuity, more momentum, then we finally we start to be able to catch things as they're arising. So we do start to see the thoughts bubble up, the sensations start to form, that sense of unpleasantness starting to build in the mind. So the research shows that with this style of mindfulness meditation, um, our attention may operate up to uh, 10 times faster than ordinary levels. So in the course of ordinary life, just wandering around, doing our thing, whatever, um, about half a second is the fastest thing that we can resolve. So if there's an experience that lasts at least half a second, then the conscious mind picks up on it. If it's less than half a second, mostly we just miss it. We might catch it subconsciously, but the conscious mind doesn't really register it. But through this practice here, the, the processing speed has been shown through research actually speeds up. So we might catch things that are a 20th of a second, 10 times faster. So that's a big difference. That's much faster. So we start to be able to see beginnings, middles, ends. It, it can start to be like a parade where we see, you know, the thought arises, bubbles up out of the subconscious, it runs its course, and then it ends. The, the sense of tingling arises, you know, lasts however long it lasts, and then it ends. So we start to see this parade of experiences passing by, you know, the Shriners and their little cars, and then the, the high school band, and then, you know, the local uh, reenactors unit, or, you know, whatever it is, the Peruvian dancers. <laughs> and that's the point at which we, we really start to get this truth of impermanence. We really start to see that it is just this parade of one thing after another, passing, passing, passing. So this is how wisdom grows, when we start to see this deeper level of impermanence. 
that it is just this parade of passing sensations, passing thoughts, passing feelings. And it's really pointless to try to hang on to them or to hurry them along, to make either to make them stay or to get rid of, rid of them, because they're doing their thing. You know, they've each got their own agenda. <laughs> they've got their, their thing that they're doing, and they come and they do it, and then they pass. So this helps us to relax some, to stop struggling so much, to try to control everything, because we realize that all of these experiences, all these impermanent experiences, they're following their own dharma, their own lawfulness, their own truth. One teacher said that true wisdom lies not in letting go, but in realizing that everything is going anyway. (laughs) So a lot of times, you know, you guys come into the interview groups and the question comes up, well, should I just let it go? Really, when wisdom kicks in, we start to see that that's a moot question (laughs) because it is going anyway. If you just wait, just wait and it'll go. You don't have to let it go. (laughs) You don't really have any option. (laughs) So just seeing that, getting that, you know, directly in our own experience for even the briefest moment, it doesn't have to be a whole day of resting in that place. It can just be literally, you know, a second of getting impermanence on that level that can be incredibly powerful. It's like a tiny pinprick in a balloon. You know, it's only the the slightest, tiniest little chink, you know, or the the chink in the dam. You know, it's it's never going to be watertight again. (laughs) It's never going to hold air again. We might not see it that way all the time, but once we know, we know. We know for ourselves. It's not just an idea. It's not just a concept. It's not just a philosophy. It's our own experience. And without even trying, without needing to make it happen again, that will change our lives, inevitably. That kind of understanding will change how we relate to everything that we do. The second universal characteristic of experience is dukkha, which is often unfortunately translated as suffering, uh, which is a very imprecise English translation of the actual Pali word. Um, One teacher likes to translate it as stress. Um, You might see pain. Um, Unsatisfactoriness or the unsatisfying nature of experiences is a little bit more to the point, but it's a bit of a mouthful. And just as with impermanence, there's also an ordinary level of dukkha that we're all aware of. It's what the Buddha referred to often in the the teachings as old age, sickness, and death. (laughs) (laughs) which is um, really just shorthand for everything unpleasant or painful that can happen to us in life. Old age, sickness, and death, and dukkha, (laughs) etc., etc. This is just one version of the traditional formula from the suttas. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. Where the five aggregates aggregates of clinging means everything. (laughs) Everything that we experience through the sense doors. So again, we don't need to meditate to get this, right? By the time we get here, we understand this. Even those of us that are not meditators, that have no spiritual uh, practice, understand this. You know, all we have to do to understand this is really just to live. (laughs) Life will teach us this lesson. But just as with impermanence, through meditation, through the power of mindfulness and concentration, through the lens of insight, 
we begin to see aspects of dukkha that are not so obvious at first glance, aspects that don't fit so well into the definition of suffering, what, what we think of when we think of suffering. So we start to see that more unsatisfying quality of experience, what, which we might call vulnerability or insecurity. We start to see that because of the truth of impermanence, because there is this parade of constantly passing experiences, and we can't make it stop, that there's, there's no way to get any lasting satisfaction from any experience. So we might think of um, peak experiences in our life, and just see what comes to mind. You know, for me, I remember um, being in Europe in my youth and being in love in the spring. <laughs> kind of like one of those, that was it. That's about as good as it gets in this life, you know. And there have been other ones too, you know, the birth of my children, or, you know, just see what comes to mind for you. Being in some beautiful place or being, falling in love, being in love, or, you know, those times that are just like the high points of life. So now those are over, right? <laughs> <laughs> because they're impermanent. Maybe, you, maybe you know, some of us here are lucky enough to be in one of those phases of our life right now. But the ones that, certainly some of them have passed. So where are they now? You know? That summer that I was in love in Europe in the spring in my youth. It was wonderful when it happened. Did it make me feel like I never needed to be in love again? Was it so good that I could just say, ah, I'm set. I do not need any more love. I am, that was so good, those three months, I don't need anything else. You know, and that applies to everything. You know, there's, is there any meal that we've ever had that was so good that we say, uh, you know, I don't need any more of that. <laughs> that was perfectly satisfying. I am set for this lifetime. Let me move on to the next thing on the bucket list. No. We have wonderful experience. It's not that there's not joy in life. There is joy in life. There is pleasure in life. There is love in life. But it's not, it doesn't fill us up. You know, there's no reservoir in us that it can fill, that we feel satiated that we don't then, as soon as it's over, want the next hit, right? This is the unsatisfying nature of experience. So even within the midst of the most pleasant experiences, there's this kind of, you know, suffering isn't really quite the word for it, but this kind of insecurity, you know, especially at a certain point in our lives, we know, we know it's going, even within the midst of the the, the nicest times. At a certain point, we start to have that uh, nervousness that we know things are going to change. This, is, this kind of dukkha is called viparinama dukkha, the, the, the dukkha of change, the dukkha of insecurity. And we start to, to see this, too, in our practice, can give us insight into this. There's a, there's a saying here that there's nothing like a good sit to ruin your day. <laughs> <laughs> If you've been lucky enough to have a good sit, not really a good sit, but a pleasant sit, right? So we might have, you know, that one sitting or that one walking period here, or maybe one meal or, you know, some little period of time when, you know, the hindrances relax and we're just kind of in the flow of things and it feels easy, maybe it feels delightful. And then what happens the rest of the day? (laughs) It's about trying to get that back, you know, and we can spend you know, the rest of the retreat, looking for a hit of that same feeling, you know, because we want more of it. We can spend the next decade of our practice <laughs> looking for that same experience in the next retreat, in the next one. Don't do this. <laughs> Avoid this if you can. <laughs> we're, speaking, we're, we're warning you out of personal experience here. <laughs> so 
But this is exactly the same thing that we do in our lives, right? You know, unless somebody points out that there's an option, that there's a different way to go about it, this is how we live our lives, just chasing after the next hit of pleasure, the next hit of satisfaction, of satisfaction, because it never is permanently satisfying. And what we find for ourselves, and what the Buddha said, is that this is samasara. This is an endless round. There's no end point to it. There's no ending point to that path of seeking gratification, because we'll never find anything that's permanently gratifying. So again, seeing that on a deeper level, seeing how the experiences come, they go. You know, the unpleasant ones are just unpleasant. <laughs> the pleasant ones are not reliable. You know, we sit, we sit here on the cushion and we watch the parade go by and we see that and we get it on a deeper level. And again, without trying to, without needing to make it happen, that'll transform our relationship to our lives. Can't help but... So through insight, we come to understand impermanence on deeper and subtler levels. We come to understand suffering on deeper and subtler levels. And we may also come at some point to see uh, this quality that we call anatta, the quality of uh, no-self or non-self, emptiness, impersonality, um, which is often the hardest one to, to wrap our head around. The intellect may actually struggle with this one quite a lot. We tend to get a lot of questions about it after this talk <laughs> because it's hard. This one can be much harder to get a grip on. It's not something that we see so much in our ordinary everyday experience. It's not something we're necessarily going to have some sense of without having done a certain amount of contemplation, a certain amount of meditation. But it's just simply the understanding that there's, there's not really any puppet master <laughs> orchestrating everything that's going on. There's not a, uh, an MC that's coordinating the parade, that's calling everything up, that's dictating the terms. There's no little uh, mini-me calling the shots, managing everything. An image that I often use... Um, this is an old movie now, but I remember seeing Met, the first Men in Black movie around the time that I started practicing, which is about like this elite uh, squad of uh, police force, kind of CIA-type organization that their job is to monitor alien life on our planet and hide it from you know ordinary civilians and make sure that think, you know the aliens don't cause trouble, basically. <laughs> Um, and there's one point at which an alien has been murdered. They're trying to figure out what's going on with it. And the, the body of the alien, which looks like kind of an elderly Jewish jeweler from New York, <laughs> is lying on the slab in, in New York. And they're kind of leaning over him. And they press a little switch by his ear. And his whole face opens up. <laughs> it's this door. And his face opens up. And there's a tiny little alien sitting inside his head like a whole control room of little levers and knobs like, you know, like the great and powerful Oz. You know, so it turns out this little tiny alien and this, this elderly gentleman's head has been controlling the whole show. <laughs> and I thought that this was just such a great Dharma image <laughs> because often that's how it feels. You know, we may not explicitly uh, realize that we have this assumption, but there can be the sense that, you know, somehow, somewhere in here, around here, you know, some other dimension of here, there's something, there's some core that's, that's me, that's somehow in control, that's some, or that's somehow experiencing all this, or somehow directing all of this. We, we have that felt sense. There are reasons why that's conditioned into us. 
Again, it's very useful in evolutionary terms. <laughs> but what we come to see as we practice, as we watch the parade passing by, there's nothing that comes by that we can identify as me. You know, there's moments of heat, there's moments of cold, there's moments of pain, there's moments of pleasure, there's moments of thinking, there's moments of different emotions. And there's nothing else in the parade. <laughs> the parade is empty, empty of any, any self. There's never anything that comes by in our experience that we can point to and say, okay, that one, that moment is me, or that function of mind is me. We start to see that it's all just impersonal. That, that that's what we are. We are this impersonal parade, this impersonal flow of different experiences, different qualities passing by. And that whole thing, you know, that parade itself is what we call me. But there's nothing in there that's a, that's a core to it, that's a foundation to it. So each of these insights may at times be exhilarating, or horrifying. <laughs> we can see them through different lenses. So at times we may have a moment of seeing, oh yeah, that, that thought, that was impermanent, or it was impersonal, I didn't make that happen, it just came, it just went. Um, we can have moments of that, of seeing in that way, and it feels so liberating. <laughs> it's such a relief. Oh, I'm not responsible for it all. It's not all about me. At other times we may see that quality or one of the other qualities, and it may, may be really jarring. You know, it may be really, um, uh, may just feel like the whole rug of our understanding of who we are and how the world operates has been pulled out from under our feet. It can be deeply unsettling at times. There's a metaphor um, that we use some here, sometimes here of a falling skydiver. <laughs> so, you know, somebody's been preparing for a big dive, you know, they've been practicing and uh, you know, learning how to use the equipment and doing practice, small practice jumps, all that kind of thing. And the big day comes <laughs> up in the airplane and they're excited. They jump out of the airplane and it's exhilarating. You know, the, the, the rush of falling through the air and the, the panoramic view out over the earth like, you've, like they've never had. And so at first it's exhilarating, but then at a certain point they realize they've forgotten their parachute. <laughs> So then panic sets in, <laughs> grief, despair. Oh no, it's the end of the world. I'm done for, you know, I can't appreciate the scenery. I've got just moments to live. <laughs> you know? So that goes on for a while. And they're falling and they're falling and they're falling. And they're falling and they're falling. <laughs> and after a while, they start to realize there's no ground. <laughs> there's nothing to hit. So then equanimity sets in. Okay. This is how it is, falling, 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 falling. So insight is not only about recognizing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, impersonality, but also coming to terms with them, adjusting to them, adjusting to this new understanding of how things really are, which is an ongoing process. And we've been speaking about this some too in the groups. There's only so much that we can take in at once. You know, so maybe we have just a little bit of an opening, and that's enough for now. We're not really ready to take in more. As the practice matures, as the, the supportive faculties, the wholesome faculties of mind strengthen, then we can tolerate more and more, and we can open to more and more. So it's a gradual process. In Zen mind, beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi says, that things change is the reason why you suffer in this world and become discouraged. 
But when you change your understanding, your way of living, then you can completely enjoy your life in each moment. The effinescence of things becomes the reason that you enjoy your life. Let's sit for a moment. That things change is the reason why you suffer in this world and become discouraged. But when you change your understanding and your way of living, then you can completely enjoy your life in each moment. The effinescence of things becomes the reason that you enjoy your life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.